It's very binary. It's either on or it's off. <clears throat> We've actually decided that God's very binary too. He made the heavens and the earth. He made day and night. Um, in 2002, Helen and I went on a short mission trip to uh, Thailand because I'd always thought that being a missionary was very exciting and I actually wanted to go to Mongolia, but it didn't work out. So I went to Thailand and uh, I don't think we helped much really, but we met some amazing people. And at one stage we were standing in um, uh, a tennis court and this little kid, about boy about four years old, comes running past. And he's running past and then he stops and he turns and he comes up to me, puts his hands together and bows. And I thought, wow, that's never happened to me before. It's, uh, it's called a why when you put your hands together and you bow. And apparently the more important the person you are bowing to, the further you have to bow. And this kid bowed a fair way. I was quite impressed. Because in New Zealand, if you meet a kid, you're lucky to get a smile. So I thought, well, this is a cultural difference. And when I was studying um, uh, at university and I was studying sociology, they asked us this question, what is culture? And they came up with this, this theory that it's the way we do things around here. And I was discovering that in Thailand, they do things slightly differently. They show respect for people who are old and, or older. And as that, now that I've moved into that sort of um, area, I found it quite delightful. And I couldn't find a picture of the kid, but I found this on the internet. This is what they do. They put their hands together and they bow to you. Of course, if you are the important person and someone bows to you, you have to work out how far you bow back. And we met some important people and they just went a gentle nod. But it got me thinking about culture. This morning we're, we're dealing with Nathaniel and what sort of culture was Nathaniel born into? You see, I don't know if you can see on that map too well, but when Alexander the Great charged out of um, uh, Macedonia and pummeled the Persian Empire in record time, it, as we were on his way back, he died. So his empire was split up into uh, four regions, um, which were given to his four generals. And one of them was Ptolemy, he went to Egypt, and his dynasty dominated uh, Israel for about 160 years, and then the, the Seleucids up in Syria dominated um, Israel as well. And when these Greek soldiers turned up, they brought with them some cultural baggage. They brought things that the Hebrews hadn't seen before. And whatever happened was these things poured in and affected the um, Israelites for something like 300 years. It was a tsunami of Greek cultural influences. For example, they, they were wealthy, so they brought lots of trade. And if you, want, if you were a Jew and you wanted to trade, you had to learn Greek. And Greek became the trade language, not only of that area, but of the entire Mediterranean. So they would speak Aramaic at home, but they would speak Greek in the marketplace. And some of them even took Greek names. And then, because they were great builders as well, the Greeks who loved sport, and they bought sport. Now, as New Zealanders, we know the importance of sport and how much fun it is, but imagine you hadn't had sport and suddenly it arrived. 
And, and so what happened? They built these hippodromes and they had horse racing. And of course, where you get horse racing, you tend to get a bit of gambling as well. They also brought theatre. They had plays, and the Greeks were great at writing plays, often with a sexual theme, but they wrote plays. And even these symbols today you'll recognise of the masks, because what happened was, if you were playing the part of a happy character, you put on a happy face mask, and if you were playing a sad character, you put on a sad face mask. And what the actors were doing was acting underneath the masks. And the Greek word for that is hypocrite, which we still have today. And they also had gymnasiums, but they didn't lift weights. They did things like running, throwing javelins, discus, and wrestling in the nude. And they also had lots of idols around these gymnasiums. So with this particular um, impact of Greek culture, there were three different things you could do. You could either accept it, you could resist it, or you could compromise. And over time, there was a little bit of compromise. People say, OK, well, it's OK to learn the Greek language. I mean, the, you've got to be able to communicate with these people. And if you want a government job, you've got to be able to speak Greek. So they did that. And some of them even took on um, Greek names. For example, Philip, who's one of the apostles, his name means someone who likes horses. But there was still some, a, a great deal of resistance. And certainly the rabbis thought, resist! This is evil, because they, are, they have idols. And they were not particularly keen on it at all. And they were very worried about their young people. Now, after about 160 years or so, the, the uh, Ptolemy's empire, or this, uh, dynasty, faded a bit. And the Seleucids arrived. And what Antiochus Epiphanes decided to do was to turn these Jews into Greeks. So he, he went into the temple, he looted it, he sacrificed pigs on the altar, he put up an image of Zeus. Well, that was enough. Enough is enough, they said, and that's what started the Maccabean revolt. And eventually they uh, faded, and then the Romans turned up. And the Romans liked Greek culture, so things hadn't really changed. So then we come to Nathaniel, whose, whose history for his whole people has been one of fighting against these Greek cultural inferences. And the first thing we can learn from him was his name, because his name wasn't Greek. His name was Hebrew. His parents gave him a Hebrew name. And it means the gift of God. And often you'll find in the Old Testament, when a name ends in E-L, you know it's a reference to God. And like new parents everywhere, when you see a child or you see a grandchild, you think, wow, this is a gift from God, and you get enthused. But he wasn't only a gift to, um, to his parents, he became a gift to the entire church. He was also known as Bartholomew, which is, means son of Ptolemy. His name is actually mentioned, uh, Nathaniel is mentioned twice in Scripture. It's in John chapter 1 and John chapter 21. The rest of the time he's called Bartholomew. Now, we don't know what he looked like. We have no photographs, no written descriptions of what he looked like, but we imagine that he looked like a typical Jew of that period. 
And he probably, since he had a conservative name, means he had a beard because the Greeks tend to be clean-shaven. But we do know a bit about his behaviour and we can learn something about his character that hopefully can inspire us. He came from Cana, which is about six and a half kilometres north of um, Nazareth. But in order to, to focus on his dramatic um, confront, not confrontation, dramatic exposure to Jesus, we need to go back a few verses in John chapter one, when he was, when John was John the Baptist was baptizing in Bethany beyond the Jordan, and you'll see in the map that that is some distance south of the Sea of Galilee. And in Matthew, he tell, in chapter 3, verse 16, he tells us that after he was baptised, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and John saw the Spirit of God descending on it as a dove and settling on him. And this was, at this point, Jesus was empowered by the Holy Spirit to begin his ministry. And then we're told that the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the desert so the devil could test him. Now scholars think that that desert could have been just to the west of the Dead Sea, where it's pretty barren. And when Jesus returned, he went back to where John the Baptist was, and John recognised him. And he said, here is the Lamb of God. Now when he said that, a couple of his disciples, called John and Andrew, heard him, and straight away they transferred their allegiance to Jesus. And the first thing that Andrew did, we're told, was to find his brother and tell him, we've found the Messiah. Well, his brother was actually about several days' walk away, so they had to head off back to Galilee, to Bethsaida, where their hometown was. And Jesus also decided to go to Galilee. And as uh, Andrew was heading off to find Peter, where's pretty much a, a good guess to think that John went to find his brother James because they were in Bethsaida. And when, when Jesus got up there, he met Philip, who was also from there. So he's an apostle or disciple number five. Now, and when he saw Philip, he said, follow me, and Philip did it immediately. He recognised who he was. Now, Philip didn't have a brother that we're told of, so he went and found his best friend. He went off to find Nathaniel. And when he got to him, he said, Hey, we have found the one that Moses and the prophets wrote about. He is Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Now, at this stage, Nathaniel was probably aware of John the Baptist because a lot of people have been talking about him. A lot of people from Jerusalem are coming out to him and the, the word was getting round that he was a guy who was claiming to be a voice in the wilderness and that the Messiah wasn't far away. But Nathaniel said something that sounds, on the surface of it, a bit cynical. He said, can anything good come from Nazareth? I mean, it's just the town down the road, I know it quite well. You see, he knew his scriptures. And he knew that Nazareth is not mentioned in the Old Testament. Well, he thought he did. But he was wrong. There is a cryptic reference in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, where it says, In earlier times he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt, 
But later on, he'll make it glorious by the way of the sea on the side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Now, as you read that, you think, oh, it's just some strange names. But when you look at a map, you'll see that Zebulun and Naphtali were a couple of the tribes of Israel who were given some land, or supposed to take some land, up near Galilee. And if you look at the arrow, it points to where the borders are, and it's pretty much where Nazareth is. So hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus turned up in Galilee, his, he was predicted to do that. And he became a great light, not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. So Philip comes to Nathaniel and says, well, look, come and see. Come and see this Messiah. And as they approached Jesus, Jesus spoke first. And he said something quite amazing. He said, here is a true descendant of our ancestor Israel, and he isn't deceitful. Now from that comment, you can draw several conclusions. One, there are a lot of people who are deceitful, and here's a real one who isn't. But it also means that he was looking straight at Nathaniel and seeing what he was really like. And Nathaniel's response was equally quite as perceptive. He said, how do you know me? Why did he say that? I think he said it because he was misunderstood by a lot of people. Because Nathaniel was someone who was a bit blunt. He would say what he was thinking and saying what everybody else was afraid to say. But in his heart of hearts, he knew he was honest. He knew he was true. He knew he would love the truth and he wanted what was right. And he was someone that he didn't know who recognised that in him. And he was impressed. And Jesus said, before Philip called you, I saw you under the fig tree. Well, at that point, something dramatic happened because the Holy Spirit suddenly spoke into Nathanael's heart. And he said, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. Now, other people were slowly recognising that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, but Nathanael was the first to say, you are the King. That is a very significant statement. Because you see, in the Roman Empire at that stage, the Romans really didn't care what religion you followed as long as you paid your taxes and you acknowledged the Romans as supreme authority. Yes, they had a king in Herod, but he was a puppet king, so he didn't really count. In fact, when you think about when Jesus was being crucified and was on trial, um, Pilate well, he wasn't interested in he, didn't, he thought, these Jews are just squabbling about their own religion. And so what did the mob do to really provoke Pilate? They said, but he's claiming to be a king. And he said, well, it's just a squabble between you all. And then they said, we have no king but Caesar. And suddenly Pilate was caught. He realised that he was someone who was claiming authority above Caesar. He was claiming to be the supreme authority and demanding that people follow him. And when he was crucified, the charge against him was put on his cross that it was the king of the Jews. But he really was more than that. And so what Nathaniel was saying was, my allegiance is not to Rome, it's not to the Greek culture, it was a 100% commitment to Jesus. Now when 
he said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It does sound a bit cynical, a bit sarcastic. But Jesus didn't say, you're a bigot. Go on, mean-mouthing all these nice people from Nazareth. He didn't. You see, at that stage, we have what, we call, what I call first-century identity politics. Because the Judeans thought they were superior. They lived in where the temple was. They, were, they had the priests. They were educated, sophisticated people. And the people in Galilee, well, they lived out in the back blocks. They were the farmers and the fishermen. In fact, they even spoke differently. And you might remember that when Peter was caught denying Christ, a slave girl came up to him and said, You're a Galilean, aren't you? I recognise you by your speech. So maybe they rolled their R's, we don't know. <laughs> and the Galileans and the Judeans looked down on the Samaritans. They were half-castes. And everybody, although they were kind of intrigued by the, the Gentile technology and, and what have you, they looked down on them because they worshipped idols. And they ate disgusting things like bacon for breakfast, ham sandwiches for lunch, and pulled pork for tea. So there was this, and you could tell pretty much by looking at somebody where they belonged. If they were clean-shaven, they were a Greek or a Roman and worshipped idols, and you didn't want to eat with them. If they spoke with a Galilean accent, well, they were hillbillies and probably didn't know as much as you did. And if they spoke with a sophisticated accent, they were these arrogant city people. And so we had this diversity but also this tension. But when Jesus looked at Nathaniel, he looked past his appearance, past his behaviour, and looked straight at his character. And you know, he wasn't the first person to act like that. You remember the story from 1 Samuel chapter 16, where Samuel had been delegated the job to go find Israel a king. And he was told to go to the house of Jesse. And, he, and Jesse brings out his sons, and Samuel is standing in front of Eliab, and he's a tall, big, rugged, muscly, handsome guy. And Samuel thought, he'll make a good king. And then God whispers in his ear, people judge others by what they look like, but I judge people by what is in their heart. So he went down the line, couldn't find anybody who met the description he was supposed to, or got God's approval. So he said, have you got any other sons? Oh, We've got this lad, but he's out guarding the sheep. Well, bring him in. And of course, we know who he was. He was David. And David is described as a man after God's own heart. So Nathaniel became a disciple, a fully committed one, and he witnessed the first miracle that Jesus did, and it was in Cana, his hometown, where Jesus turned the water into wine. And he witnessed many other miracles. And he was there in John chapter 20, 21 when the, the seven disciples had been fishing all night and caught nothing and Jesus turns up and they all had a men's breakfast. He also witnessed Jesus' ascension to heaven. He would have witnessed the birth of the church at Pentecost. But some things he didn't witness. He didn't witness the transfiguration. He wasn't the first to see the empty tomb. He didn't become a key leader in the church in Jerusalem. You see, Jesus had three very close buddies, Peter, James, and John, 
And then there were another nine disciples. And that's where Nathaniel was, part of that group. In uh, Matthew chapter 10, verse 2, he, Matthew lists the disciples. And there are, most of the Gospels do this. They list the, the apostles that Jesus called. And in Matthew, you see he, he puts them in pairs. There's Simon and there's Andrew, who are brothers. There's James and John. And then there's Philip, along with his friend Nathaniel, or Bartholomew. And then you've got Matthew and Thomas, which seems like an odd um, pairing. James and Thaddeus, that we don't know much about. And the two interested in politics, Simon the Zealot, who wanted to kick the Romans out, and Judas Iscariot, who wanted to use politics to promote himself. So if that was the cricket team, Nathaniel would be a middle-order batsman. Not a star, just someone who's supposed to build on what the others have done, or if you follow New Zealand cricket, someone who's got to rescue them when they failed. <laughs> so what happened to him? This guy who was 100% sold out to Jesus and saw him as king. Well, tradition tells us he was martyred for preaching the gospel, possibly in Armenia. So what can we learn from him? Well, if you commit your life to Jesus as king, he will use you to promote his kingdom. But you might have to pay a price. So it also raises the question, since God looks on the heart, when he looks on your heart, what does he see? Well, I think he sees your intrinsic worth. Jesus told the story of a man, or a merchant rather, who found a pearl that was so beautiful, he sold everything he had to buy that one pearl of great price. And that to us is, is Jesus talking about salvation. And some people, when they come to Jesus, do that. They give up everything because they recognize the value of that relationship. But what if... God saw each one of you as a pearl of a great price. Somebody so precious, so wonderful, that he was prepared to die for. This guy you will not know. His name is John Lennox. He's a mathematics professor at Oxford University. He's also a Christian apologist and an author. And here has something that's quite worth listening to. He said, The starry heavens show the glory of God, yes. But they're not made in God's image. You are. That makes you unique. It gives you incalculable value. The galaxies are unimaginably large compared with you. However, you know that they exist, but they don't, don't know that you exist. You are more significant, therefore, than a galaxy. We are privileged in Centro Otago to be look up to the stars, particularly in winter when you see them, and we just see a glimpse of one galaxy, the Milky Way, and it's just awesome. So next time you look up, you say, hmm, I know you're there, but you don't know I'm here. I'm more significant to God than you are. Amazing thought. But God also sees not only your intrinsic worth, but your potential as a disciple, because he has plans, plans for each one of us, to help extend his kingdom. So, what have we learnt from our saints and sinners series? Well, from Peter we have learnt that God can use you despite your mistakes. Which is wonderful because I, like you, make many of them. 
From Barnabas, we learn that reconciliation is possible despite intense disagreements. Now, in the 50 years I've been going to church, I've seen some pretty heated disagreements. Disagreements about, do we have pews or flexible seating? Do we have drums in church? Do we sing hymns or choruses? And often we've been quite intense about some things which are quite minor. In fact, it's been said that we don't argue about theology anymore, it's all about style. But even though we have those intense disagreements, we can have reconciliation. From Deborah we learnt that if we listen to God and obey him, we'll be victorious. And from Phoebe we learnt that serving God can lead to intrepid journeys. And hopefully from Nathaniel we've learnt that God can use you if you're fully committed to following Jesus as king. How is this applicable all to us today? Because today we live in a sophisticated, fast-changing environment. I mean, the internet was only invented in, I think, 1979. And for those of us who are older, we remember the first dial-up modems, which, you know, made all this noise like... And you had to wait forever for the thing to load up. But now we have a generation of digital natives who have such tremendous hand speed with their phone and can do things we can't dream of. But we've also been hit by a tsunami. And this tsunami is not of Greek culture. It's of moral relativism, where people think that what they think is right, where there is no real truth. We have gender confusion. We have homosexual characters turning up in kids' cartoons and in kids' books now, and even in our schools. We have critical race theory, which says that some races are better than others and some are worse. And yet Jesus was always someone who was drawing people together. We have social engineering, where the government rewrites history. And we have political correctness, which means that if you dare criticise this stuff, you're accused of hate speech. So what are we going to do? Do we give in? Do we resist? Or do we compromise? We can, if we just want to, develop a fortress mentality. We can lift up the drawbridge, flood the moat, and hunker down with our shield of faith and wait for Jesus to come and rescue us. Or we could, like Athanasius, do something about it. Athanasius was a bishop in Alexandria, and there were a lot of Greek ideas floating around that were threatening to subvert Christianity. And he said, if the world is against the truth, then I am against the world. And he formed the Athanasian Creed, which helped form the Nicene Creed, which laid the basis of our Christian faith. So, we can also decide to fight back. Yes, you can stand for the Board of Trustees and on the, in the local school. You can write letters to your members of parliament or letters to the newspapers. You can wave placards in the streets. But that's political and will have limited effect. Or... We can do what Paul said. He said in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, the weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have the divine power to demolish strongholds. Please notice that weapons is plural. Yes, we have a shield of faith, which is defensive. And for us older Christians, we know that whatever happens out there, whatever they say, whatever they promote, that we have a history of answered prayer. We know God is real. But what about our next generation? They don't have that. 
So therefore, I think it's very important, more than ever, that we pray for our kids, our grandkids, for our youth. We should pray for their teachers, for our youth leaders, for those who teach the children's church. And we should pray even for the people we don't like, like the government. We need to be more intensive and more devoted to prayer than ever before and recognise that prayer has power. But wait, there's more. Today is Pentecost Sunday. When we remember when the church was born, when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the people who were praying in the upper room and they spilled out into the street and they were praising God in languages they hadn't learned and people were amazed. And then shortly afterwards when Peter got up and preached the sermon, the authorities said, hang on a mo, this guy is uneducated. And yet he's speaking with such authority. What's happened? And then they realised that they'd been with Jesus. And if we spend time with Jesus, and if we pray, and if we ask the Holy Spirit to empower our lives, we can make a difference. We don't have to hunker down. We don't have to be defensive. The time for us is to stand up and make a difference. Let's pray, shall we? Lord Jesus, we acknowledge you as our Saviour. But we also acknowledge you as our king. And we ask for courage to face all these things that are flooding through our country and are affecting our young people. And we ask that you would empower us with your Holy Spirit, that we may be motivated to pray and motivated to stand and to do what you command us to do through your scriptures 